0: You know, the question is, how does the unthinkable come to happen?
1: Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast. I'm joined today by Jason Osder, the director and producer of Let the Fire Burn, an extraordinary new documentary about MOVE. A radical anarcho primitist organization and its confrontation with the Philadelphia police in May of 1985. Jason is also a professor at George Washington University. Jason, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So tell me about what initially led you to make this documentary.
0: Yeah, I was uh, living in Philadelphia in 1985, I was 11 years old. And I remember the incident, and I remember it in a very specific way, because- Were you an you were,
1: anarcho-primitivist?
0: I was not an anarcho-primitivist, but I guess the point is, I was not. I was 11, hmm. right? I wasn't socially conscious whatsoever. I wouldn't categorize myself in that way. And I think that's part of the reason, I mean, it's a very tragic, traumatic event for the whole city. But as a child, it, let alone a frame like that, you don't have any of those frames. I don't see it in terms of race, I didn't see it in terms of police brutality. It was. I saw it in terms of children being killed. In a fire in my town, and no one seemed to do anything to protect those children. And that was, um, like, shocking is not the right word. These are all adult words, but as a child, I was frightened. Do you know what I mean? And so that stuck with me. And I think the timing, the age I was, and the similarity to the age of the children, it was just really the first event from the news, from the outside world, that sort of you know, pierced my little childhood shell where it's just your family and everything's safe and whatever. And I was like, oh, well, maybe everything's not safe. Like, what's this thing going on? And so
1: it's really the first thing that sort of woke me up in terms of sort of a social consciousness. So the coverage of the event must have been just saturation coverage, I imagine, you know, anywhere. Did your parents try to shield you from it at all? Or was it you? Were you the one who really was pressing to... Uh
0: uh, you know, I, I don't really remember them shielding me. And it was it was just ubiquitous. I mean, it was just something that um, not only was it on the television and on the front page of the newspaper, but it was it was sort of what people were talking about. I mean, you, you know, when you have in an urban city something that's just, just bubbling up and, and on everyone's mind, it's just you can't get away from it. It's like that, that tension that you can cut. Um, but in terms of making the film, I, I, I don't... I don't want to say that this is a true story about my experience, but in terms of aesthetically making the film, I thought about the film feeling like a child sort of sitting too close to the television screen, sort of maybe without supervision. I'm not saying that was my situation, but aesthetically, that's sort of how I wanted to depict it.
1: So when you're looking at Move, one thing that strikes me is that the nature of the group, it's radicalism, it's separatism. It seems to come out of an older political tradition that was, in some sense, kind of anachronistic, but also doesn't fit that neatly with other groups as well. So, um, certainly in the 1960s, 1970s, you had a variety of black nationalist organizations, leftist political organizations. Yet, this was a group that was often described as a back to nature group as well. So, a back to nature group. In the heart of inner city Philadelphia, tell me a little bit about the ideological. Yeah, and I mean it's
0: it's 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 very complicated, and I try to do my best not to speak on behalf of Move or to quote them directly. And it's you know one of the things I did with the film was to create a pastiche to avoid having to sort of write into these answers and sort of let them exist in the the media coverage. But I think that um, I think that Move was intentionally hard to pin down and hard to define. I think there's a strain of um, uh, sort of contrarianness in them, right? So they, they like to, to tell you, no, we're not that. So if you say um, you're just like the Black Panthers or Black Liberation Group, they would say, no, we're not that. That's not how we define ourselves. I think they also were very smart um, message creators and propagandists, and they sort of picked and chose the things they wanted in light for their purposes. So, for instance... In the late 70s, when MOVE demonstrates by having um, primarily black men, not all men, not all black men, but primarily black men, demonstrate with guns in fatigues, they understand the power of those images and they know where it comes from in terms of a political lineage, but they don't actually share that political lineage. They're just, in my opinion, using the iconography of that to, to stir the pot and to upset people because they know what that will do. and um, So I think it, the Back to Nature tag, I think, was fairly appropriate, probably the best tag in the early days. And it definitely changed over time and that, you know, there's a quote from the film, so one says, you know, Moves principle never changed, but their their attitude changed. They became more bitter. They became more recalcitrant, right? So they were sort of happy doing their thing. And from their point of view, it was the consistent brutality of the police that made them sort of militarize and toughen up and have to take stronger action. So it's very hard to pin down. There's no single word. I'll give you a very interesting example and why they sort of invited this sort of thing, but also how it was very, very dangerous. So there's an academic that did extensive work, uh, textual analysis on all of the press and media coverage. And uh, her name is, um, uh, last name is Wagner Pasifisi, Uh Robin Wagner Pasifeci, and her book is Discourse and Destruction, and this was influential to me. She showed a lot of things, but one of the things she showed is in the newspaper coverage, The newspapers in Philadelphia struggled with what to call the group. And all the things you said, Back to Nature was in there. Colt was in there. I don't know if they used anarcho-primitivist. I think that's new to me. But it was all over the place, right? It was all over the place. Until as we got closer and closer to the confrontation, um, they centered in on a word. And that word was terrorists, right? And that's what all the papers, by the time this thing happens in 1985, all of the papers have congealed around this one word, terrorists.
1: How long did the story linger? Do you recall uh, it being in headlines for a long time after the incident, after the confrontation took place itself? Well, it's an interesting
0: question. I mean, my recollection is as a, I was a child, um, I my feeling is it, it was a blip on the national radar in the news, and then it, it pretty much went away. But it, it's interesting. People have suffer- such different impressions of that depending on where you go and who you talk to. Frequently, I get the question, why was this not better known? Why did it not make a big news splash? But then when I screened the film in San Francisco, where people are generally both liberal and socially engaged, and I mean, I don't think that's a wrong stereotype to say that, uh, the question was reversed. And it was it was like, what about the big news push that happened in this huge news story that the, the nation heard about? And I was like, I, I think that's your bias. I think that's because you were tuned into it, right? Um, so for my impression, it really... Did not stay in focus in the country, and I think that um, I think that the reason for that, or one of the biggest reasons, is just that you know at the intersection of real complexity and racial issues in this country, the news media does not have a good time covering those complexities. And I, I think sometimes what they tend to do is either just short shrift or just let it fade out because they don't have the capacity to really deal with that complexity. And another layer of it. Um, is I think the national black leadership, the people who you would expect to stir that pot. And uh, colleagues of mine at GW uh, telling me that there's a lot of literature, academic literature, that says you know, for something to become a real scandal, for bec- to become that type of issue in the news, you really need a proponent of it. You need someone out there stirring the pot. And what happened quite literally is the national black leadership, people like Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson came to Philadelphia the next day, but he didn't come to support the neighbors. He came to stand in solidarity with Wilson Good, the mayor who gave the command to let the fire burn. So I think that that intersection of of race and real complexity, I think, was very hard for both the media and particularly the national black leadership at the
1: time to handle appropriately. Well, let's tease this out explicitly. So if I'm a member of the national black leadership and Jesse Jackson was someone who had uh, political ambitions at the time, national political ambitions at the time, and it seems that MOVE was an extremely idiosyncratic group it was a group that was very much in tension and in conflict, not just with the police, not just with the authorities, but also with a working class, a historically black neighborhood. That's right. That's right. And so, if I'm someone who's trying to build a national movement, associating myself with a group, an anarcho-primitivist group, right. uh, when I'm trying to build some kind of, let's say, center-left coalition, right. this seems like exactly the wrong kind of message to be seen as defending the members of this group, right?
0: And, uh, absolutely right, and Wilson Goode is the first African Amer- American
1: mayor of Philadelphia. So the perception someone... that he can't keep a handle on a group like this could undermine his political authority. I tremendously did undermine his political authority.
0: And he was someone, I think, that was also seen by the national black leadership as someone, you know, an up-and-comer with, with potential. So, yeah, they didn't want to associate themselves with the group that, you know, had a, at least had a visual appearance that was not what they were trying to project to the rest of the country. And they didn't want to throw Wilson Good under the bus, even though his actions and his decisions, in, in retrospect, were very, very questionable.
1: If you think about the idea of subversion— uh, it seems that the group was almost perfectly subversive, uh, you know, just in terms of trying to subvert any understanding of the group that existed at any given time. I mean, it, it, it almost seemed as though they were hungering for a confrontation, and there's also a kind of recursive element to it. So in 1985, they're protesting um, the fact that some of their comrades had been imprisoned after the 1978 confrontation. But there was no clear political objective other than, it seems, for them to exist as they had been existing. And yet their existence was itself provocative. I mean, the loudspeakers, the Well, in
0: 1985, their agenda was to get those cases open and get their people out of jail. Now, that's a totally unrealistic agenda. That was never going to happen. There was a dead cop and, I mean, arguably— the trial was a railroad job. Arguably, there was a lot Just of... Just
1: for our viewers um, who yeah. haven't yet seen the film, tell us a little bit about the first confrontation.
0: Yeah, sure, of course. So it, this started in a neighborhood called Palatine Village in the early 70s. And it's notable that that was a neighborhood where there were other things like this going around, you know, on, uh, other cultural movements, other new religions, people practicing different lifestyles. And they were pretty accepted there, the neighbors there um, it was a very, very mixed, mixed class, mixed race, people doing all kinds of things. Um, and they were pretty accepted there. And at the time, the um, mayor of Philadelphia was um, Frank Rizzo, who was also the police chief, and had built up this very tough, very, very sort of stereotypically racist police force, intolerant police force, not even only racist. I mean, they were known for beating students and challenging gay people and, and just everything. Um and so the, the conflict that played out in 1978, they really couldn't come in over the top tremendously violent, because the neighbors stood with them. I mean, the neighbors, would they blockaded them, and the neighbors brought them food. Eventually, it does come to a shooting match, and a police officer, James Ramp, is shot and killed. Now, Move will insist, and there's actually quite a bit of evidence... About this, that that could have been friendly fire. You know, they insist that no one fired that shot, but nine members were convicted. Right? How, and they, they were, how does how do nine people get convicted for one gunshot? And there's a lot of evidence that didn't even come from our what house. Was
1: the, uh, what was the what uh, was the original reason the police were sent into the MOVE compound at the time? In, in, the, in uh, the in the in the, the seventy eight incident.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was built up over a period of time. In the 78 incident, a lot of the charges seem pretty mundane to us. They were things like um, they didn't pay their city bills. They didn't pay their taxes. They didn't pay their water bills. But then it, it, it ramps up when I think they try to do inspections, and they're not allowed in the House, right? So um, they've got an, an order to evict eventually based on this, you know, wide range of charges, but nothing that is violent. And they have an order to evict, and they refuse that order. But it builds up for a long time. They actually blockade the block. It goes on, I think, for 14 months, the blockade. They've got it staked out. It's tremendous overtime for the police, a tremendous expense. And there's just a standoff for a long time. And then uh, finally, it breaks violently, um,
1: and and um, but and not standoff. as violently as... And the standoff is sustained because there are members of the neighborhood, there are people living in the neighborhood who are, are willing to break it and who are willing to assist them. Which is ways. one of the big differences between 78 and 85. As you pointed out,
0: the neighborhood in 85 our architecturally was different in that the houses were row houses, but also socially was quite different, mostly along the lines of class. This was very much a, a working class black neighborhood, and they were not at all tolerant of these people that were acting this way and building a fort on top of their roof and putting a loudspeaker up. But again, I think this was calculated. Mo- move just, they wanted to get their people out of prison. They thought that going directly to the government was never going to get them anywhere. But making the block unlivable so that the neighbors went to the government and demand something would be done, that that could get them some traction. That the police would either, this is in the film, the police would either have to uh, compromise with them or confront them. And
1: ultimately, they, they confronted them. This is a funny question, but when I think of Philadelphia, I think of a city like many older American cities that uh, is pretty segregated, uh, pretty racially polarized, and that racial polarization shapes its political landscape in lots of ways. You also spent part of your life in Florida, and I wonder about how you think about the racial landscape in Philadelphia, how that shaped the confrontation. Because it does seem as though, when you mentioned Frank Rizzo, uh, definitely racial polarization was a big part of his administration. Um, And I I wonder how that, and yet, you know, as you mentioned, MOVE was an organization that was certainly not embraced by all of Philadelphia's black community. So I'm just curious to hear your Yeah, I mean, I think... I
0: think the history of Philadelphia does have a lot of racial issues and has been racially charged for much if not all of its history. But I don't actually see it as segregated in the sense that southern cities are segregated. I think it's more, um, maybe more similar to a city like New Orleans where you, you have pockets. It's like, it's that type of city, not like Washington, D.C. or or cities in much of the south or Florida, which is really like you could draw a line down the middle where certain types of people go and certain types of people do not go. It's It's not that type of segregation. And then I think... There, I think nationally that that period in the late 70s, early 80s was really a time of radical change. I mean, you think about this from 78 Rizzo, who was just stereotypically intolerant of, of of racial minorities, but all minorities, or I mean, just intolerant, period. And and where is it on you know, so easy to stereotype as this old school sort of boss style mayor? And he is. And he was police chief and he built it up. And, and within... We go from that in '78. By the time you get to '83, there's the first African American mayor of the city. But but things haven't really shifted, right? Like the 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 cover page has changed, but what's in the book has not changed. And I think it provokes a lot of interesting questions. You know, Rizzo built that police force, and then it was sort of like they chopped the head off of it, right? And you still had. All of the rank and file that had been trained that way, and the leadership—the police chief and the fire chief—came up under Rizzo. And then you have to ask about Good as well. I mean, Good was a technocrat. You know, he was very mild-mannered. He was—he was the type of politician that was able to make everyone feel comfortable. But then it's—you se- know—Rizzo is very easy to s- stereotype as the bad guy. But then I think you have to ask: How does power really work? Because as bad as he was, he went down to the scene in '78. He held the bullhorn. He commanded his troops. One of his guys was lost. All the children came out of the house alive. Right? Good. Stayed at his office. You know, took phone calls. Watched on television. He wasn't really prepared for it, I think. And um, that all happened within such a strange space. And I think a lot of what was, I think a lot of what settled out in those years has to do with our current political reality still nationally. Um, but I think a lot of what was going on in those years was things working themselves out. You know, some rapid elevation here, but not really the change that you would expect it to mean. Um, I was on a program with, with Ramona, and uh, the commentator asked her, "Did you expect a different result in 1985?" Ramona, who was uh, one of the was members Ramona of Ramona Africa, <laughs> yeah, um, the, the only survivor, uh, the only adult survivor, and of course Michael Ward was the only childhood survivor who passed just last week, unexpectedly. But they asked Ramona, you know, did you expect a different result because it was a black mayor? And, and her answer was, absolutely not. He's a politician.
1: So. Well, just, uh, so Rizzo, the fact that he was willing to go to the scene, I wonder what that tells us about him. One thing that he was known for um, is devoting tremendous resources to municipal employees, um, you know, which is, you know, interesting. I mean, you know, he's someone who built up the city of Philadelphia's government considerably, uh, and it seems that he had a, a real connection to the rank and file. Um, whereas, you know, would you say that Good didn't have that same kind of organic connection to... To the
0: police? Certainly yeah. not. I mean, to, to, certainly not to the police. Um, you know, to other segments of the community. I don't know. It's just so new. I mean, I think... Um, I think there was excitement um, about the city having a black mayor for the first time. Um, you know, I think, I think, yeah. If you take a wide lens, you ask, well, this first generation of African American leaders that gained prominence. I mean, Good is so soft-spoken. He's so down in energy, and I think part of what's going on too is that is that for a long time the the black leaders that really put their fist in the air and 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 used strong political rhetoric were assassinated, frankly, you know, just didn't make it to a point where they could gain political power because they did not survive. Um, so the, you know, there's a there's lot to it. I have one of the interesting stories that I never got on camera, but I was told at least once if not twice on good authority, is that Rizzo was desperate to get on, good on the phone that day in 1985. He was out of government at this point. And the reason he wanted to get Good on the phone is because the police chief, a guy named Gregor Sandbor, that Good had put in place, Rousseau strongly felt he should not be police chief. And, quote unquote, he said he was uh, not right in the head from Vietnam, and he said he understood it, and he he put him, he sort of sandbagged him in the police academy, an administrative role where he couldn't do any damage. And then after Rizzo was off the scene, again, it was like the, the head was cut off through whatever bureaucracy, this guy that he felt like he had a number on him, and that number was, keep him out of the way, don't let him cause trouble, he had risen to the rank of police chief. And so Rizzo was desperately trying to get good on the phone to tell him you gotta get Sambor out of there. With Sambor in there, things are gonna go horribly, horribly wrong. Mm. And so it's and he couldn't get him on the phone. So I think it it you know, I I like to sort of trace those lines of, of political power and, and come to interesting questions and intersections about how it really works, because it's it's not simple. It's not simple at all.
1: It's kind of like you can think of the rules that are on the books. You could think about formal institutions and structures, and then you can think about these organic relationships. You could think about politesse. You could think about the idea of whether or not one understands the texture of the neighborhood, how much pressure it can take. And it's almost as though Move had this very good bead on exactly how to regulate and modulate exactly how to get a rise out of people or not. And Rizzo also had a sense of mood and tone, and he had these longstanding relationships, uh, whereas uh, his successor didn't quite get it. And so when you're trying to think about things in formal—or similarly, when you think about the first confrontation too, okay, this is what I find really fascinating. You have MOVE continuously uh, defying various laws and what have you, and then you're just kind of accepting it because you fear confrontation. And it kind of reveals, when you think about the enforcement of any law, yeah, yeah, yeah. how much of it rests on the implicit acceptance yeah. on the part of the people on whom the law is being imposed. And then when you have some organization say, well, I'm actually not going to recognize your authority, right. well, I can run over you. or. Well, actually, I'm willing to do enough and to exercise enough. I'm willing to counterpunch. And then suddenly, you realize how thin the authority is, how vulnerable the whole system is. And I think this is
0: exactly what they wanted to provoke. I, I mean, it's back to your question about the nature of subversion, right? And I think um, I think a lot of this is about line drawing, right? So Move was very good, and I think this is so applicable to today's political reality. Move was very good at walking right up to line. So let's say the line is um, First Amendment free speech, right? And they would just, you know, if is it okay? Is it free speech if I want to curse you out? Is it free speech if I want to put a speaker on the my building, on my property, and broadcast to the whole neighborhood, you know, obscenities? It, it, they, would, they would, you know, when they demonstrated with guns, and then the authorities would come back and say, Well, that's not free speech. You're threatening people with guns. And they would say, But these aren't guns. They don't work. They're just props. Right? They had a real knack for whatever that line is. And I think these lines are so it's just a lifestyle. Another line would be having to do with the children. And uh, what Move would insist just the other day said, One of the reasons the authorities were so upset with us is we didn't put our kids in schools. Right? And this gets to a whole issue with homeschooling. And, you know, I believe people should have that right, but can you keep your kids at home and teach them to be racists? You know what I mean? Like, that's a problem if people are keeping their kids at home and indoctrinating them in a way that's not going to be socially productive, right? And But how do we... I think that we're extremely good at provoking those spaces, you know, and it's all about democracies, right? Because these are things, you know, in a dictatorship, you don't worry about this. You you know, your kids go to, sh- go to school, or we take them away from you. You don't have the right to free speech. But I think MOVE was very good at exploiting, and I think we can think of other examples of entities that are very good at exploiting sort of the weaknesses that come with freedom and democracy, right? Taking these lines and pushing them one step at a time, just like you say, so it's hard to be like, well, Hey, you know, we don't need to bring the police in just because you wear your hair differently. We don't have to bring the police in just because you are homeschooling your kids. We don't have to bring the police in just because you're not teaching your kids to read. Do we have to bring the police in if you're malnourishing your kids? You know what I mean? Like, when are you going to reach that line? Do we have to bring the police in if I'm demonstrating I'm not pointing the gun at you, and maybe it's not a working gun? but I've got a whole line of people standing on my property with these guns doing calisthenics. Maybe we occasionally we go down to the corners and do those workouts with our guns. Right? Where And they were just so good at that, moving that line one step at a time, creating incredible discomfort and creating that type of challenge for authorities. Right? How, can, what, how can we respond to this? And eventually, they went totally over the top.
1: They went totally over the top. This is why I find the terrorist label... Interesting and telling because now, you know, almost 20 years on, uh, almost 30 years on, good grief, uh, terrorism has a very different kind of valence. It has a very different kind of meaning in our society. And, and I wonder, you know, how people would use in that context. So, you know, you're coming out of this period in the 70s where you had um, various left-wing terrorist groups and what have you. So perhaps you could characterize it as prolonged to that tradition, although not quite. But in a very deep sense... This effort to reveal and upend what they seem to have seen as the hypocrisy of bourgeois democracy or of yeah. the institutions that they were contending with. The system. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, just revealing, forcing the the system to reveal its hypocrisy and its contradictions. It does seem terroristic in the sense that it's designed to so fear. And the fact that um, it... You got to this incredible point of high tension before you had this confrontation because it brings to mind the idea of zero-tolerance policing, the idea that, well, if you don't let us inspect your house, uh, you know, if you don't pay the city tax, well, we're going to go in right then. But it's just interesting. That it's precisely because of desire to avoid confrontation, you allowed that to build up.
0: Yeah, I came to see it in a sense as just two conflicting value systems, two groups being the Philadelphia police and the group move that actually don't live in the same reality, that they actually, their values are so divergent that they don't, like it's one of those clashes, like a clash of, of civilizations. They just, they live in different realities, and when that, as you say, and you can, because of that, they can sort of push for a while, but when the, the edges finally break and it goes through it, it's very, you know, you see this in the film, there was, there was the, the sense from both sides that their opponent was in fact not fully human in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Was, was less than an, than an equal human being. And I think when you have that, again, writ large, when you have these conflicts where one side does not see the basic humanity of the other side, that is when you get this the level of violence where I think people are killed with no regard for their humanity and their children are killed for no regard, just because of who they are, right? I mean, it's impossible, rationally, I think it's impossible to see these 9-, 10-, 11-year-old children that were raised their whole life in the group as culpable in the same way that an adult in the group is, is culpable. and And these are degrees of culpability, right? And an adult in the group may not be as culpable as Rizzo or Good, but certainly an adult in the group has more responsibility, bears more
1: responsibility than a child that came up in the group. The dehumanization piece seems textbook whenever you think about any violence, uh, genocidal violence, something like this, or, or this idea of forward panic. Um, Randall Collins at the University of Pennsylvania often talks about how when you're looking at violent situations, it often spirals when the victim is actually weak and perceived as weak, and then suddenly you kind of rush in. Um, and I wonder about the fear of the police that day. Um, because of the 1978 confrontation, because of how provocative the group was— I wonder to what extent this was an overreaction that—because, you know, on a certain level, well, you know, okay, perhaps you could actually—you should actually have people go in. You should have them rush the building. But it seems they were interestingly hands-off, and they wanted to pump the building full of tear gas, and they just were so— at a distance as though any sound, any rustle of a branch would have made them panic. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, it, it makes total sense. And I
0: do think that one of the ways to understand the actions or inactions of the city government was through this lens of fear. And it, and it trickled down through sort of putting it off and not wanting to take any action, and then through this sort of hands-on action. It reminds me a lot of ways um, about the, the drone war and the b- debates about Syria, right? We can do this, but there's no way our guys are going there, right? That could, That's never gonna happen. Um, when we look at it domestically in, in an urban context, I think it's also just tactical and technical. That is, today, police would go in totally armored. They, you know, they would have, they would not have fear because they would have the equipment to do the business without really worrying about taking loss of life. Um, but I think, yeah, that that sense of fear, that sense of hands off, the sense that not even just. Well, there are a couple things going on. I think the leadership was very frightened. They didn't want to have the news of a dead cop. But I think a lot of the cops were legitimately frightened of being shot and killed. But then you also have police that were there from 78, police that were at both scenes and knew the guy who was killed, knew the police officer who was killed. 8 years previous so there's also the sense that some of the, there's the individual psychology right uh, what does di- it do to, desire to someone revenge perhaps right, that's right once you've seen your friend go down are you going to so there's there's both fear and the potential for desire to revenge and then they're they're interplayed right so so the the political leadership and the police leadership is i think largely operating on that we don't want blood on our hands we don't want that press and then some of the individuals are operating with a combination of fear and um, a certain type of revenge or hatred um, which is a very dangerous sort of combination.
1: You mentioned that there were many people you grew up around, uh, you know, later in life after having left Philadelphia who were not very cognizant of the MOVE story. But I wonder how it shaped urban policing because it seems to me that after something like this happens, if I'm a police chief, if I'm a police officer, anywhere throughout the country, I would I would see this and and think very deeply about it. Do you think that the the 1985 confrontation with MOVE has shaped policing in the country in some way?
0: Um, I'm not really, I don't think expert enough to really say that. I think, you know, there was some some of it's kind of awkward. Daryl Gates, who was the famous um, police chief in Los Angeles, and he was, I think, already police chief at that time and then served for another, you know, 10 years or whatever into the 90s, he lauded it. He said, that's the way we want to do it. That's, you know, he publicly said that's what was necessary. They did a good job there. Um, So I don't know how important this incident was. I think that the way I look at it is there's a process where um, domestic police forces have become more militarized in terms of their tactics and their equipment. And they're more prepared with their helicopters and their high caliber weapons and their body armor. But you were, again, at this transitional point. It was Today, I think they have all the equipment they need, and they've actually been trained largely how to use it safely, whereas I think you were at a point there where they were getting exposed to it, but the, the safeguards were not in place. I don't know that all of the safeguards are in place per se, but I feel like there's too much concern over media and PR and exposure for anything like this to happen in an American city with a major metropolitan police force. I just don't think it would happen this way. Um, but if you go one step broader and, and look at some of the decisions we make in our international affairs um, and, again, that sense of otherness or dehumanization, that sense of where certain types of fear and fear of sort of public um, dressing down for politicians lead them to make sort of marginal halfway decisions where you're kind of in and kind of out. And then we're, you know, dropping bombs on people by remote control, which is very similar
1: in, in a way, you know. Did you spend a lot of time looking into talking to people who belong to the communes and intentional communities that existed uh, in the 70s in Pelton that uh, you had mentioned that had coexisted alongside Move?
0: I really didn't spend a lot of time there because I basically, you know, as a storyteller, it's a challenge. There are multiple films here. There's a whole film about the early days and them coming up in that neighborhood. There's, um, uh, scenes in my mind that I really like, you know, John Africa is sort of just a character at first, you know, sort of pre- preaching to the masses, leading a pack of dogs around. And he befriends a guy named Donald Glassy, who's a white sociology professor at Penn. And I believe at Penn, I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, it might have been Drexel, but. And they, he's the one that encourages him to start writing down the rules, and they make these guidelines. I thought that was an interesting moment, that, that when it's all verbal and we're just sort of having this oral history and talking philosophy, it's one thing, but there seems to be this change when the, it becomes guidelines, like there's a book now. And then ultimately, Glassie is um, arrested on, um, on a pot charge, and he's flipped, and they have him running around, they have him in there as a plant later on, the ATF flips him. And they have him sort of making these arms deals on behalf of, like, basically entrapping them. And, I mean, the whole thing is fascinating. But what I realize as a storyteller is that, you know, it's really the the most dramatic thing to deal with, the most prescient thing to deal with, the most salient thing to deal with is is the, the bombing in 85. And I believe strongly that you have to know about 78 to understand the causes for the bombing in 85. This is issue of fear that you brought up and cycles of violence and how that all works but that the complexity of it had to fall away in a lot of ways because it's essentially Act one to me. And you have to get through it. And when I, I screened for for Move and some, Ramona and some of their supporters, some other members of the group, and you know, I mean I, I told them going in I said there's things in here, there's missing things, there's always missing things. There might be some things that are missing that you don't appreciate. And one of the people there, not a member, but sort of an academic, who studied it really was disappointed that I didn't get into the the angles of the shooting angles and who really shot that cop, right? Because there's a whole film and it's almost like a JFK story, right? About two, you know the single right. bullet theory and that sort of thing. I mean, you and and they have a point if you actually analyze the autopsy reports and the angles and you graph it out and you and actually at a time I thought yeah this is the type of film it's going to be with with you know that <laughs> kind of that kind right. of you know 3D or whatever yeah. and you know bullet trajectories. And it just wasn't, um, that was not the emotional heart of the story, and so we didn't go there. But there's
1: so much that we didn't do. When did that change? I mean, when did you go from thinking, yeah, I really wanted to get into the guts of this and, and just kind of see the angles of the bullets to this thought that I want to do something that's drawing exclusively on archival footage and just let that footage tell the story?
0: Well, it was a progression. I mean, what I was really commenting on was more structural. So even when we had a more traditional approach, there was the realization that you, you have to pare it down. You can't get it. You have to focus the story plot wise and theme wise, and you can't necessarily get everything interesting in. Um, but then later than that, to work all archival and to, I just realized that, it, that the story is so complicated. And the things that people getting it the first time are interested in are not where every cop was standing and where every gun was pointed and if it was possible for this person to really be receiving gunfire from that person or if possibly that was friendly fire at that time. That The the nitty-gritty of that was not what was emotionally attractive to an audience, That, that it was other things about the... The thematics of it, the why's, the attitudes, the 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 depicting of that dehumanization, for instance, right? So you know, you ask why and, and get into a big thing about how he wasn't really shot, and that's why they're so pissed off. And if you understood where the bullets came from, you would understand their case, and that would make you. But that that just wasn't as um, as emotionally resonant as uh, you know someone saying you could never relate to them; they were move members, and that was more to the point. You know, the question is how does the unthinkable come to happen, right? And that answer is much more psychological than tactical, right, much more about what goes on sort of between our ears than what goes on, you know, in this real space of, like, the war zone, right? You can understand a war in different ways. And one way is what was the position of every army, and one way is, you know, what was the psychology that that brought us there? What was, how did that, where did that hatred come from? And it just turned out to be a film much more about about those philosophical and moral themes and much less about could it have been a two-bullet theory or whatever.
1: Tell me about your decision to make the movie feel as though it's taking place in the present tense.
0: Yeah, and that's that's exactly how I would like to put it as well. Some people are talking about this technique with archival footage as um, uh, archival verite or something along these lines. And I, I... I think that's an uncomfortable formulation. What I like is, yeah, the past is present tense. That's exactly what I was trying to do. And I think I just had certain emotional and intellectual goals. I wanted uh, emotionally for you to just be immersed and involved. And then intellectually, I wanted you to sort of be battling to figure out what this was about. And and to every time you sort of like, oh, I understand this in this context that I feel comfortable with, I wanted that to be sort of ripped away so you didn't feel comfortable in that way. And so, yeah, it was a very conscious decision to sort of make it play out in real time, in present tense. And my feeling was that that would would lead to more of a, a lean forward experience, more of a participatory type of film. And emotionally, you would be on the roller coaster and intellectually, you would be fighting with it, but actually it probably moves too fast to actually um, you know, fully digest it intellectually while it's going on. I hope you're mostly experiencing it emotionally, and then you're left with something that is more difficult to digest at the end. I think at a certain point in the film, you, you, viewers will start to watch it for plot, right? They'll be just enraptured in this activity, and it, you know, it plays very action-packed, like a thriller, I think. And, but then later, they're going to have to deal with the fact that they just started to watch this real tragedy like they were watching Die Hard, right? And, and essentially, like, you, you slow down to watch a car crash, and I want there to be that feeling. I want it to be uh, like a horror film that you watch sort of between – you don't want to watch, but you have to keep watching. And I think that's very emotionally effective, even in fiction. But then I think in nonfiction, when you achieve that, it's also very morally engaging, intellectually engaging, because you have to think of that phenomena That I just, in essence, enjoyed this ride. Although the nature of this ride was people being um, burned to death. So I think it, I think it essentially gives the audience a break when you go to that reflective. You go to the talking head who's going to break it down for you and say, this is how we see it in hindsight. This is our reflection. I think that gives the audience a break. I think that gives them an out. I think they stop experiencing the real thing, and it's calming. Okay, someone's going to explain it to us. I didn't, I didn't want to be calming. I wanted to keep people on their toes. And I think that, that present tense, I, there's, you know there's, there's liabilities to it. There's a lot of things the film doesn't do. Because it plays out in that way, but I thought if we kind of have the the emotional integrity, have like do this one thing well so that people are you know not just interested but actually moved by it um, that, that a lot of the other information's out there, um, and they could go find it so that was that was some of the thinking
1: I also wonder just about this idea of ubiquitous surveillance and ubiquitous self-surveillance or what do you think about uh, cct cam- uh, cameras and how incredibly pervasive they are now and just the idea that this could be such a treasure trove uh for people making uh you know narrative nonfiction films in the future i mean that seems potentially unethical but certainly very interesting just the idea of being captured by video at all times when you when i think about um Documentaries um, made in the mid 80s, something like Sherman's March, for example, I always think about um, the painstakingness. I mean, how incredibly difficult it must have been to capture these moments given uh, how little you had in terms of film and what have you. Uh, Whereas you have this material, you have this material that, in a sense, was. Some of it was already narrative, I mean you know, having um, you know, people presenting uh, at a trial something at a hearing, um, you know people are telling their various stories and you 're interspersing them uh, you 're cutting them together. Have you ex- tell me about uh, some of the other film projects you 've been working on yeah,
0: so it's interesting i mean I, I think you're right and and we now live in this world where almost everything is covered at least. You might not be able to find it, but you're probably on camera, right? I mean, we're on camera right now, but I was probably on camera, you know, as like, I got. I mean, I know I was on camera as I left Midtown, you know what I right. mean? I mean, there's no doubt about it. What I find fascinating about the move material is that it's still new, right? It's one of the first times that the press went live, the TV press went live and stayed live. And now it's like... You know, Yeah, O.J. Simpson's in a Bronco. Let's go live and say, like, Lindsay Lohan's getting out of rehab. Let's go live and stay live all day, waiting, yeah. you know what I mean? Just stay on the scene. See what's going to happen. But they're getting used to it. And part of what I like about that particular footage that I think will be different as we have this ubiquitous footage is that they're figuring it out. You see things that you would never see now, like, like the commentary with his either, like, reporting at 3.30 in the morning. He's got his tie untied around his neck. Now, someone would definitely say to him, either tie it or take it off. Do you know what I mean? Like, and and they're just they're just figuring it out on the fly, and I think that's fascinating. Um, I have started uh, work on a new project that has to do with the assassination of um, an Arab American activist, also in 1985, a man by the name of Alex Auda, who was um, assassinated by a bomb in Santa Ana, California, opening the door to where he worked, which was the Arab American Anti Discrimination Committee. And interestingly, that happened on October 11th, 1985. It was a day that the MOVE Commission actually sat and heard testimony. So in Philadelphia, they were already hearing testimony, and this bomb went off in Southern California and killed this activist. And um, I'm working with a a colleague of mine, uh, William is at GW, who's a a real expert on um, uh, communications in the Arab world, as well as um, Arab-American sort of political activity and political voice. And I think the hook of the film is, again, another one of these stories that Americans, if if we flesh it out, will be surprised. And the the FBI very quickly comes out and says that, as you say, there were lots of interesting groups operating. That a group called the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, was, or members of them, were responsible. And this is announced after two weeks. Now, 28 years later, it's it's still an unsolved murder, and sort of the within. Um, Arab American communities, it's just a very sore subject because the feeling is that this thing, like, if any other type of activist was killed, the government would have done more about this. And in particular, that members of the group were sort of uh, very quickly shuttled back to Israel where they had dual citizenship and there's been no real effort to extradite them. So, uh, but formally in the film, we actually see this as quite different. We don't think there'll be a treasure trove of archival footage that we could tell the whole story. In fact, we're very excited by um, some of the present day activists who who are very active in pressuring the government pressuring the Justice Department to take this seriously and or raising money and doing the research and doing the investigation themselves. So this is a little bit of a flip for me in terms of opening up the past through more of a present-day observational experience, I'm very interested in the the motivations of the uh, everyone really, but especially the present-day activists. These are people, um, you know, maybe closer to our age that are um, have their own history and backstory, but see this 25-year-old murder as an important place to engage and try to get resolution because of. Uh, Well, because it's a person that lost his life and there's been no justice, but also because of what it represents more broadly to an American community and this idea of uh, having political voice as an Arab American particularly and just how fraught that can be. So that's the new project. And in some ways, it's similar, right? It's another 85 incident, another thing that you feel like Americans should know more broadly, but they don't. Um, but a different approach to exploring history, I think, um, and, and more of a present-day component. We sort of literally see the historical scenes opening up out of the research, and you know, our main character finds that box of tapes, and then we sort of literally or figuratively go through that engagement in the present day to open up that box
1: of tapes and show you something about the past. You're a professor of media and public affairs, and mm-hmm. I wonder, how has teaching informed your work? Yeah, so I've been
0: teaching professional classes, adults, um, a lot of people that were in journalism as print people but needed to move over to video, a lot of television stations How many people get marketable skills? I mean, yeah, yeah. This, this that's, sort of, that's, yeah. And, and what I was brought to the university, and this was, as I said, this film had sort of fallen to a place where it was unfortunately just a hobby, you know, something I did when I had time, something that I pursued incrementally, something that I didn't focus that much on the end game but just sort of couldn't put it down, so I kept tinkering with it. Um, But the reason I, you know, the reason I was attracted to the university was, I mean I think they saw potential in this, but I mean frankly the structure of my contract and everything is all about teaching the kids and, and my, what I was hired for was not to make a film. What I was hired for was because the people that know how to do things like edit video and build websites typically are not that good at explaining it and I saw long ago that, uh, along with my business partner, that our niche could be not just being able to do the thing, but being able to talk about it and explain it, or we saw ourselves as translators, um, teachers and translators. And, you know, maybe we're moving through this transition, sort of starting, starting to come out the other end, but if we rewind um, nine, ten years, there was just... Uh, you know, some things were still going nonlinear for the first time. Final Cut specifically was, was getting into everyone's desks, and producers were editing, and people that were print journalists were editing, and a lot of um, traditional journalism outfits were opening. Their, not even just journalism, but communications, PR. You know, everyone was putting in that edit suite down the hall, and people needed to be trained in how to do that. And there was this great shifting of who does the actual work of communications and where is it done. And with video in particular, there was just a lot more people needing to do it. And that, that was the strength of Bromley the university. It was uh, essentially a bonus for both of us that I found myself in a place where I could um, actually execute sort of what I consider my most ambitious
1: goals. So uh, to be totally blunt, the fact that this movie has gotten such a rapturous, positive reception, is a Got to be a pretty big deal for you, right? Because I mean, there must have been times during the course of doing this work and doing work that you find satisfying and training people, but you must have thought, well, this thing that I really have cared about for a long time, it might never come together. Well, that. Thank you. Um, The reception is exciting
0: for me. I I would say this. I mean, there was just a lot of phases. It went on during for a long time, and I would say the lowest phase was a point where I sort of realized that rationally. It might not make sense to do this, right? That, that rationally, it might make sense either to put it down, not do, to try a different film, try something shorter, try something less complicated. Um, but I just couldn't let it go, and psychologically, I reached a point where I was just like, I can't, I don't have the constitution to stop doing it. Like I always come back to it, I always make that next phone call or look at that next tape or whatever it is. And so I was like – and then I became sort of comfortable with that and I thought, okay, well, it's just a process. It's just something I do. It's an activity, <laughs> right? I don't think about finishing. I just it's, – it's either – I'll either finish one day or I'll die trying, but I can't – putting it down is not an option, right? I mean, you do it because you feel like the story has to be known and for the story to – for the film to succeed, for the story to be known, you have to – Exist commercially. I mean, that's the world we live in and work in, and you have to market it and you have to hope that people will pay to see it because otherwise they won't see it. It won't get out there. Um, but a lot of the satisfaction for me, you know, when we picture locked the film is the score wasn't even done or anything, but at the point where I started to feel like, yeah, I've accomplished what I set out to do as an artist, I started to relax a little bit. I was nervous about finishing the film, but that's been done. Nearly a year the film is finished, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and around that time, as I started to recognize that I was satisfied with the creative product, that I had satisfied this thing that I'd been walking around with me for 30 years, trying to like, I mean, I think that's what you do as an artist. You, you take the things that you can't let go of, the stories that exist inside you, that just grind your gears, and you try to do something with that feeling. You try to make it public for the rest of the world, and... Um, now, what you say is hugely important, because now, like, who's actually going to see it is important. But the thing that was maybe initially more satisfactory was just that I'd done it. I'd accomplished it. I told the story in the way I wanted to. And a lot of the rest is just bonus points, you know? It's just icing. High five.
1: You
0: know, <laughs> thanks so much for joining me, Jason. I
1: really appreciate it. It's a wonderful movie, and I hope it finds a very wide audience. Thank you. I think we're off to a good start, and I appreciate your support.